Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that never fails to point out that a bastard exposed, the special of hit ITB sitcom The New Statesman, was actually broadcast by BBC Two. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to, is writer Paul Kirkley. Paul, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, today I've been writing up an interview I did with the lovely Eleanor Tomlinson off of Poldark, or Poldark, I should say, which will be uh, available by the Tills in Waitrose shortly. Uh, I've also been working on a feature for Doctor Who magazine that will be marking a significant anniversary. That's coming out in a couple of months. And um, you can almost also find me in sfxradiotimes.com as opposed to the posh paper one. Um, and various other places around and about. And I've, I've been up to my usual nonsense, generally. Well, knowing what your first choice is, I wouldn't really call all of those nonsense in comparison, but let's have a listen to an extract from it. My friends say I'm a fool, it doesn't matter. They don't see you as I do. You're the image of perfection standing there. With your somewhat studied pose And your very uptown nose But I know you'll never hurt me And you surely won't desert me And I love you Though everybody stares I do love a frozen grin. That's Mannequin by the Kids from Fame. But Paul, that's not the Kids from Fame album that most people find three copies of in every charity shop. What is that? No, this is, I guess, um, what you might call the Kids from Fame's difficult second album, the Kids from Fame again. So as you, Tim, will know better than anyone in the world, I imagine, the first Kids from Fame album was BBC Records' biggest ever seller, I believe. And it had all the hits, Star Maker, Desdemona, High Fidelity, High. And it was such a big hit, in fact, that they rush released a follow-up three months later. And I think it's fair to say that it was very much a case of the rest of the rest on this one. Uh, but me and my sister, Joanne, who are massive Fame fans, uh, we loved it anyway. I've got to say, The Kids from Fame Again isn't really the best title. It's almost daring you to get annoyed with them. You know, oh, it's The Kids from Fame Again. <laughs> and looking at the track listing, it seems to be the songs that they probably didn't have earmarked for albums and singles from the early... I mean, I noticed Shusha Shirovsky is on there, which... For anyone who doesn't know it, it's a song about one of the tutors who had a very heavy accent. And it worked fine as a joke in the programme. I'm not convinced it really works on record. No, it, well, it, I mean, it's a synth-pop number that rhymes Chirovsky with Tchaikovsky. So uh, in one sense, it, it was pioneering because it was a few years before Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, I suppose. <laughs> pioneering in that way. Um, and sticking with the classical theme, there's also, uh, it's... Sonata Mozart, which is basically an instrumental sort of a hooked on classics reworking of Mozart's piano sonata in C major, complete with guitar solo, uh, which I loved at the time. And I'm slightly ashamed to say it's probably still the only reason I can 
whistle sonata in C major to this day. Is that title supposed to be a pun? Because it, it's a sonata Mozart. I can't work it out if it is. I, I don't think so. It would only kind of work in a heavy Italian accent, which is the wrong uh, wrong country entirely for Mozart, of course. Um, and you mentioned uh, Mannequin, I Love Your Frozen Grin there, at the top of this, which was, of course, uh, Leroy's heartfelt love letter to a shop dummy. And I think it's fair to say it, it gets a bit weird, that song, doesn't it? Yeah, you could... You could really turn it on. It's a love so sweet and tender. Oh, the joy of sweet surrender. He's uh, addressing to this uh, plastic shop dummy, basically. So, but, you know, there's a cup for every sauce, as they say. Well, I seem to remember that in the episode that was in, wasn't it? I don't think it was Doris. I think it was one of the other ones didn't turn up to a rehearsal. So they did it with a mannequin. And then when she turned up, they said, I'm sorry, you cut from the show. It works better with a mannequin, which is even weirder. (laughs) Everyone's a critic, aren't they? We've replaced you with a shop dummy. But again, it was a few years before the film Mannequin. So I guess the kids from fame, they they were forward thinking kind of people. Well, they were, but they weren't too forward thinking about a second album. Because one thing I went to check was, you know, what everyone remembers about the first kids from fame album is they were just dozens of hits from it not literally dozens but you couldn't go a couple of weeks without there being another kids from fame hit i mean you've mentioned half of them already but i think the biggest success from this was mannequin itself which got to number 50 and when your song only gets number 50 and it's being plugged every week on bbc2 i think you're in trouble by then but fame went on for a while after this didn't it it did fame went yeah it went on for a few years didn't it It kind of entered the kind of twilight janet jackson era and they even did some more albums there was the kids from fame sing for you that was the third album and the kids from fame live so they really milked this cash cow until the others squeaked but yeah you're right they, they never scored another hit after that first album so it was uh, it's very much of the moment wasn't it well it was but i mean it's easy to forget no matter what short space of time it was how huge fame was i mean it gets reduced now to the single being number one and the fact that the film sometimes rolls around i mean it rolls around on bank holidays now but it, it used to be a last thing at night because that's the weirdest thing the original film was it an 18 or an x rather in those days and yet you know you get this program aimed at children and uh, i think in the mid 80s wasn't it repeated in the summer holiday mornings that's right yeah and, the, and me and my sister were shocked and frankly disappointed when we first saw alan parker's film because Obviously, some of the characters are different actors, and but yeah, it's just it's very it's kind of quite dark and quite sweary and quite sexual, and it's yes, yeah, it's a very very different proposition altogether. But it's, uh, interestingly, Irene Cara's "Fame," which is the iconic song, that doesn't appear on any of these Fame albums that the BBC put out. Really, I, I'd never noticed that, but I'm assuming you're right about that. Yeah, I think it must have been a, a, a rights and licensing thing, but I, yeah, that that from the movie we're not there at all so yes the cl- closest thing to an iconic track is probably high fidelity hi and who was your favorite fame character i had a bit of a crush on julie you know the uh, the cello playing one from the robert altman movie okay well moving on to your second choice i'll spare you the indignity of asking if you played fame in the playground but i am convinced you will have played this at some point they're the A-T. You know they're soldiers of fortune. They're the A-T. Helping people in need. You can pretend that you're Hannibal, Murdoch, or Face, or maybe B.A. Baracus. You know each one is an ace. 
Each is sold separately with rifle and gear. If there's trouble to face, you know the A-Team's here. They're the A-Team. The A-Team. Murdoch, Hannibal, Face, and B.A. Baracus. Each is sold separately by the loop. Okay, well, maybe not played that per se, because that was the famous advert for the toys based on the A-Team, which has got that brilliant line, each is sold separately with rifle and gear. If there's trouble to face, you know the A-Team's here. But obviously it's not the A-Team, the series, because, you know, why on earth would we have that on Looks Unfamiliar? Paul, what aspect of the A-Team phenomenon was this? This was the the literary aspect of the A-Team phenomenon. This was the series of quite a lot of novels that they published to tie in with the A-Team. I've recently been rereading the literary classic The A-Team 9, The Bend in the River by David George Deutsch, which is one of the many books I read in my early teens that represent what I feel is now a bit of a forgotten film phenomenon which is the surprisingly well written and quite dense novelizations of hokey action tv shows i mean it's hard to think of a less literary tv show than the a-team isn't it and the fact that this was number nine in the series suggests that they must have been doing pretty well at the time well yeah i didn't realize there was so many of them i remember seeing the first one around in the shops i don't think i ever read that but i had books of films like firefox i remember i had splash things like that that you wouldn't think would lend themselves to a tie-in novel, but they did. And that you say they were often quite well written. But what I really remember about the A-Team books is, I had a look online earlier, and I noticed that the American imprints of them had these brilliant sort of pulpy covers. You know, they looked exactly like thriller books. Over here, they got plain coloured backgrounds, photos of what seemed to be random members of the A-Team cut out with blunt scissors. And I was not surprised to see what imprint they were issued on over here, which was Target books. Of course, Target books. I Ironically, of course, this was at the time that the A-Team was killing Doctor Who on, on TV, so inflicting damage on, on one of their best-known brands in a way, but I guess they thought having two dogs in fight, they, they win either way. But the Doctor Who covers at that point also had the blunt scissors oh, approach God. as well. <laughs> I mean, there's the, there's the cover of Ark of Infinity is possibly the worst cover of any book I've ever seen. Yeah, the, the, these A-Team books have very much have that Ark of Infinity vibe about them, don't they? But like you say, they at the time, the shops were full of these novels based on quite pulpy action TV shows and films. I've got another one here, which is Night Rider 2, Trust Doesn't Rust. What I love about this is it's got a flash across the corner that says, now a major TV series, as if uh, Knight Rider was a, somehow a literary adaptation <laughs> of, of the source novel. You mentioned Firefox there. I can remember reading the novel of Back to the Future before I saw it at the cinema, and I read the novel of Cocoon, and I've still never seen that film. So I guess, as is often said about the target Doctor Who range, it's it's of an era when people didn't have the DVD to go to, so you know they would we would read the books instead and i guess now people would have a tie-in video game or a pop vinyl or something instead so without wishing to be too school librarian about it i feel that maybe we did quite well well yeah and like you say sometimes it was not even the only way of reliving these tv shows or films sometimes it's the only way of in a better commas seeing them because if you've missed it on tv or if you couldn't see the film like for example i didn't see gremlins for a couple of years because it was a 15 all i had was was a marvel comic adaptation of the whole film and to me in my head that's what the film always is because I read that obsessively and some bits of it I think it must have been done maybe from a rough cut of the film but some bits didn't add up visually I remember seeing the film for the first time and thinking that doesn't happen there which again was the similar to the Doctor Who phenomenon of reading these 
classic stories from the 70s and, and 60s and, and maybe it not quite matching up to the pictures in your head. I was wondering, incidentally, is novelisation even a real word? Is it one of those things, I've only ever heard Doctor Who fans say it, it's sort of like roadster and pseudo-historical. Did we just make that up? I'm not entirely sure, you know. And quick bonus question, can anyone name, without the aid of Google, who played the face man in the original A-Team pilot? Because I feel that if anyone can, it's listeners to this show. I think he could be the looks unfamiliar brand ambassador. I actually have no idea about this, and I'm fairly sure I watched them. Was he in the broadcast pilot? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who was it? He <laughs> was Tim Dunnigan, the Tim Dunnigan. Dirk Benedict doesn't appear in the in the original pilot movie. Do we know why he left? Did he just test badly, as they have it? I'm not sure. I think um, I think he has done some interviews about it where he uh, where he talked about what happened. But uh, I think I wouldn't be surprised if. Dirk Benedict, who was quite a big star back in the day, maybe he wasn't available and then became available or something like that, but I'm just speculating. One thing I'm curious about about the 18 books, though, is are they written in the third person about, you know, Hannibal did this, then BA did that, or are they from the point of view of one or more of the 18? Well, what I've got here is third person. I seem to remember them being all written like this, and obviously the, the authors have a lot of work to do to cover all those scenes that are essentially just spot welding and cars turning over but but like i say they're surprisingly dense this is a this is a surprisingly meaty book and the a-team don't even appear until about chapter six so you know the, he's making the kids work hard for it when i was looking though up i did notice one of them was based on the tv two-parter when you come in home range rider and the main reason i remember that particular two-parter is the end credits of part two seemed to go on for about seven years and it had this weird extended version of the theme tune with a massive drum voluntary in the middle <laughs> I was just sitting there thinking, what, what's happening? Why is the A-Team never ending? Is there ever going to be another programme on ITV? That might be in the full version for all anyone knows, because it's almost impossible to get hold of the actual version of the A-Team theme used on screen. But I remember in the 80s, there were all those albums by the Power Pack Orchestra, <laughs> oh, yeah. who replicated sort of movie and TV action theme. But there was a dreadful version of the A-Team on, I think it was either A is for action or T is for themes. Yeah. I had A's for action. I treasured that. Well, something that I'm wondering if you're quite as proud to still have in your record collection is your next choice, which let's just have a listen to something from it now. Okay, well, hopefully that didn't sound like it was heard through a ball, but that was heard through a ball, which is the opening track from the debut album of, well, I'm sure none of you have guessed. So, Paul, tell us who that was. So, this is the self-titled 1985 debut album from Delamitri. And it's interesting because it's one of those records that sounds nothing like the music you'd normally with the band. Justin Curry, the singer-songwriter, was this young Glasgow punk whose heroes were the likes of television and the cramps and the buzzcocks. And, and it, 
it's that first kind of incarnation of Delamitri. It fits perfectly well into that because they were from Glasgow, obviously. It fits really well into that kind of postcard records, uh, Orange Juice, Joseph K kind of scene. It's got a jangle pop, quite spiky. And at the time that it came out, Delamitri were supporting the Smiths, I think. So they were obviously operating in that kind of area. To answer your question, I am proud of it because I think it's genuinely a great record, a great little piece of indie jangle pop that's somehow fallen down the cracks of time. Yeah, it's interesting that I've got to confess, even though I was a Smiths fan, a bit of a John Peel head, I wasn't really aware of them until Nothing Ever Happens, which I apologise, listeners, if a fight is about to break out about this, but I cannot stand that record. And I never took to them after that. But then one day I saw, do you remember the Peel Sessions EPs that they used to be? Mm. Where, you know, it was everyone from people like Sid Barrett and Tim Buckley in the late 60s, all the way up to people like the Jesus Mary Chain and the James Taylor Quartet. And I noticed there was a Delamitri one. I remember thinking, what? Hang on. When did they do appeal session and why? And then I did find out they had this whole history that I knew nothing about. So how did you discover them at the time? I'm quite delighted to say that this this particular album was an actual Woolworths bargain bin find. I know the Woolworths bargain bin is a euphemism for many things, but it, it's it, yes, this was in the bin at Woolworths. And in the pre-internet days, uh, I obviously had no way of... I, I knew about Delamitri by that time. But because... I had no way of looking up why this record sounded so completely different to the others. And I actually spent several years assuming that Justin Curry probably wasn't the singer originally, or he was just playing bass on the record or something. And the songs were so different, this kind of spiky, angular songs with this really dense, really fast lyrics. I thought this, you know, I thought something must have happened (laughs) to them in between. And of course, full disclosure, I have to say, I, I really actually do like all iterations of Delamitri, even after they'd been to America and kind of reinvented themselves in that slightly whiskery barroom boogie west coast rock style thing that they did i think even then though the music was perhaps a bit pastiche lyrically they were always quite deadpan and cynical and acidic and it sounded a bit like the faces singing morrissey lyrics uh, a lot of the time even on waking hours which is the one with nothing ever happens that you mentioned yeah there's a track on there where um he sings i turned on a tv station and lip read with the sound turned down it was pro-celeb mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with Esther Ranson playing the one who's drowned, which I think is a great kind of waspish lyric, but also how true did that turn out to be? <laughs> I've got to admit that wasn't really what I expected from a Delamitri lyric, so I'm quite impressed by that. You mentioned the Woolworths Bargain Bin, which is interesting and will bring me back to Delamitri in a second. I have very fond memories of that because they used to stock everything that was in the top 40, but obviously when you got to the early 90s, people who went to Woolworths to buy records didn't buy Milton Brothers records, by Manly Street Preachers records or Flowered Up or Bang Bang Machine or anyone like that. So the Monday morning after they dropped out the top 40, all these singles would be 20 pence or whatever in just a box on the counter. That's why I've got so many early 90s indie singles, despite you know still being at school at that point. Because I would just go in on the Monday morning before school and buy just anything. I wouldn't buy them in the week of release. I'd wait until they were in there and get them. The interesting thing about that is, I mean, one 
one band who I picked up a few singles by from there was Ocean Colour Scene, who, for anyone who doesn't know, they, like Delamici, they were a very different band at first. They were very kind of post-Stone Roses. It was a very odd mix. I can see why they didn't really catch on. But when they reappeared with that sort of post-Paul Weller sound, that first album reappeared in the shop straight away, even though anyone buying it off the back of hearing that riff on TFI Friday would have probably taken it to a charity shop straight away. But did the first Delamitri album get reissued on the back of Nothing Ever Happens? I don't recall seeing it around. I think it must have done, because I I would say that I picked this up in Woolworths in 92, so it was seven years old, and yeah, they'd obviously had... Um, some hits in between that so yes I reckon that is probably what happened and I suspect as you allude to there many Delamitri fans may have been crushingly disappointed by what they found I absolutely loved it and I still love it and um, when I interviewed Justin Curry a few years ago I was delighted to discover that it's still his favourite record and he said the only reason they'd never played anything live from it is because they don't know how to and he said the reason they dropped that sound was because he he started writing on his own as opposed to in a band and he he did say it lost its originality but but gained accessibility but my favorite bit was when i asked him what why his voice had changed so dramatically he just said well i lost my virginity okay well that's an interesting form of musical inspiration there are there any other bands where you like the difficult first album more than what came later because i'm notorious for speaking up for the first David Bowie album. Mm. You've probably seen me get into rows on Twitter <laughs> about that, but I love that album. It's it's so different even to the second album, but I think people should take it seriously as a piece of music in its own right. And the other one is The Divine Comedy, who... That, actually, I don't really count the proper first one, Fanfare for the Comic Muse, which was really a different band, and I think Neil Hannon doesn't sing on some of them, but the actual first album, Liberation, I think is fantastic. It's got a really rough and ready approach to it, even though it's very orchestrated and after that I'm not as interested again people think I'm barking mad for that well, I do think it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon I was really because I'm a huge Bell and Sebastian fan there's another one yeah <laughs> in the 90s I was on the late 90s early 2000s I was I liked all those bands in that kind of jeepster chemical underground kind of scene and one of those was Snow Patrol whose records were really quite uh, challenging uh, unlistenable at times kind of punky records and it, so it, it is interesting how you know they can migrate to such a, a different sound over time and it is interesting how you were allowed that even though a couple of bands we've mentioned like I think Delamitri did Ocean Colour Scene definitely did got dropped by the label that did the first album but then were picked up by another label that you were allowed that kind of finding your feet misstep in those days you weren't written off as a commercial prospect I mean I know the state on EMI, but Blur's first album is a bit of a not quite there. You know, the industry was just awash with money at that time, wasn't it? And and they could do these things. And yeah, that landscape's completely changed now. I mean, we're talking there about people kind of developing on their early promise. But sometimes when you follow up a big hit, people don't really notice something is just as good. And your next choice, I was amazed to find, doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. My name is child Henry Ezra. Surprised he's crying. What sort of a name's Ezra for a boy these days? Did you see the way he looked round? He's very bright. Oh, aye. He checks things in right enough. Sometimes I even reckon he don't much like what he sees. I'm not surprised. Daddy, tact. What? Don't draw attention to the sordid state of his surroundings. You've done it again, Doris. Okay, well, that's a clip from a 1992 ITV series called The Life and Times of Henry Pratt. 
Henry Pratt was written by somebody whose name you're very familiar with, but you probably really don't know much about these books. So, Paul, tell us all about them. Well, the reason you're familiar with them is because of Reggie Perrin. And I love Reggie Perrin. Who doesn't? But I do think it's a shame that it tends to eclipse a lot of David Nobbs's other work. And for me, Perrin isn't even his best TV series. I'd say I prefer a bit of a do. Um, and it's certainly not his best novel. For me, the four Henry Pratt books or Going Gently or Obstacles to Young Love, this is probably David Nobbs's best work. And I think he's quite underrated as a novelist probably because his books have lots of jokes in them, which critics tend not to like. So, yeah, these Henry Pratt books, he wrote four of them in total, and they're about a working-class Yorkshire lad born during the Second World War and his journey through the English class system. He goes from village school to elementary school and then to a grammar school and a public school. It's about the class system, but they're beautiful comic novels, and they were made into this TV series in 1992, which is a lovely adaptation directed by Adrian Shergold. It's all very warm, very nostalgic. It's got a terrific cast. Alan Armstrong, Stratford Johns, Maggie O'Neill, Jeff Rawl. It was actually very successful at the time. It was it did really well in the ratings, but it was never repeated, never released on video or DVD, and it seemed to kind of disappear into the ether. But it is all on YouTube, should anyone wish to watch it. Yeah, I think possibly one of the reasons it got overlooked apart from like you say everything David Nobbs ever did being overshadowed by Reginald Perrin including the remake Reggie Perrin which is possibly a candidate for this show in itself but around that time ITV made a few attempts at transferring what were very much comic literary creations to TV that sometimes just weren't suited like particularly I think it was also in 1992 there was the disastrous route into Europe which if anyone doesn't know Henry Root he was the fictitious creator of Willie Donaldson, the theatre impresario, who he put together these amazing books where in the guise of a sort of real ignorant Tory business owner, he wrote to all kinds of public figures, everyone from Margaret Thatcher to Esther Ranson, and some people have now been disgraced, ostensibly letters of support which are basically just insulting them, couched in praise for them, and their reactions were hilarious because they just didn't get it. My favourite thing about them is he always ended by saying, here's a pound to grease the wheels of power, and quite a lot of them kept the pound which was the most damning thing that they could say about themselves you can't really put that or even the other major thing he did which is Henry Root's World of Knowledge which is an encyclopedia which is funny because of the repetition because he has the same opinions on everything how does that become a comedy drama it doesn't and that flopped and that could be one of the reasons why people ignored Henry Pratt which was on later in the year and also on Monday evenings I think which was an odd time slot for it it felt more like a Sunday thing it did but but like I say, it did do fairly well. And I think, from what I can gather, David Nobbs was midway through adapting the next book. Which So this was based on the first book, which was called Second from Last in the Sack Grace. And he was midway through adapting the next one, Pratt of the Arcus. And then I think it was scuppered by, as things often are at ITV, of course, it was scuppered by some kind of network reorganisation shenanigan. It's such a shame, because I would have loved to see the rest of them adapted. As a series, Henry Pratt slightly suffers from the character's name, I think. I think that maybe wasn't the wisest 
choice. It kind of suggests something much broader, almost Tom Sharpish about it, which is not what these books are at all. They're very human and subtle and witty. Um, and the point is that Henry is not a prat at all. He's actually very smart. It's just his sort of unfortunate name is just one of the many indignities dumped on this poor kid. Yeah, they're really, really lovely books. It's interesting that they have been overshadowed. And I did notice not only, as I say, is there no Wikipedia page of them, but also I had no idea because I read what I thought were the three novels years ago. There was a fourth in 2006 I had no idea about called Pratamonje, where he wins a TV quiz show called The Question of Salt, which I like the sound of already. But <laughs> I didn't know that existed. That's a David Knopp's novel that passed me by. Yeah, well, he was really prolific in that last kind of decade and a half of his life, uh, turning out books hand over fist. And I think maybe yeah, the, the last Pratt was part of that. And it probably just got lost in the kind of frenzy of activity, I think. I've got to say, though, if there was one obscure David Knobs thing that I wanted to reappear to be better known, it's in the early 60s, he did a sitcom on, of all places, the third programme, which is what became Radio 3, called Hard Luck Hall, which was apparently about a stately home that had to hire itself out to be a different thing every week. And it had pretty amazing sounding cast. It was co-written with Peter Tinniswood. I don't think there's any of it left in the sound archives from what I can tell. All that I know about it is the theme from it is on Radiophonic Workshop 21, which John Baker from the Radiophonic <laughs> Workshop played on Soda Siphon Openers. But I would love to hear that. So if anyone out there can put me in the right direction for that, that's just an appeal. What I'm not looking for, though, is a copy of your next choice, because I saw this enough times when I was a youngster to never have to see it again. Let's just hear a bit of it now. It was foretold by witches. It was conceived through sorcery. And it was to be destroyed by all that is evil. But the courage of one mortal saved it. And so, into an age of darkness, in a time of mysticism, sacrifice and plunder, there came the only light, the Beastmaster. Born with the strength of a black tiger, the courage of an eagle, the power that made him more than any hero. More than any lover. He was lord and master over all beasts. He was the Beast Master. Okay, that's a film that, whether I like it or not, is burnt into my memory. I'm not even going to bother saying what it was. Paul, what have we been watching? We've been watching The Beast Master, and I suspect that the reason it's burned into your memory and that you sit so familiar with it is the same reason as me, is that this was a, a classic from the early days of the video rental, wasn't it? Yes, that's exactly where I know it from. Do you remember when every petrol station suddenly had a video library around the back of it and I, I rented this from our local SO garage uh, pretty much on a weekly basis I'd say for, for a time in around about 1982 or 3 it was kind of big at that time all that stuff wasn't it Conan this came out the same year as Conan the Barbarian with Arnie the uh, Masters of the Universe had obviously started coming out as well so it kind of ripped 
torsos were pretty much mm. on point at the time. Don't forget Hawk the Slayer. <laughs> okay, yes. So there was this kind of boom in, in fantasy around that time. And uh, yeah, the Beastmaster, I just absolutely loved. For, for those who didn't rent it from their local petrol station every week, it was basically about a mix of Conan and Dr. Doolittle about this warrior called Dar who can communicate telepathically with animals. And he went on a quest. He, he had an eagle and a black tiger and a pair of ferrets called Kodo and Podo and there's a, a memorable and very poignant scene where Kodo sacrifices himself by pushing the high priest into the sacrificial flames and that's probably the most memorable movie ferret sacrifice ever <laughs> scene was in all of those films though that somebody sacrificed themselves by pushing a high priest into something <laughs> and his co-star is tanya roberts which interestingly and i do mean interestingly there there's a gratuitous scene of tanya roberts bathing naked in the lake which may have had something to do with why i kept renting it so often at 12 years old but i think it was a pg and i don't think you'd get away with that level of boobage in a pg today would you unless it said on the back of the cover contains mild boobage there was also an the evil sorcerer was played by hollywood's favorite tautological actor rip torn yeah because it was a very 80s cast because obviously the beastmaster himself was played by mark singer who was also in v tanya roberts was in the view to a kill and john abos who was kunta kinte in roots which i know was the late 70s but it was always on the bbc in the 80s it was really a whole 80s blockbuster cast distilled into one film that was kind of beneath them really well tanya roberts was of course in charlie's angels but the kind of at the point where everyone had stopped watching it she, she's kind of the looks unfamiliar of charlie's angels and she's also midge in that 70s show of course so what i was surprised to learn though i had no idea about this until this week that there were actually two sequels to the beastmaster and tv series a tv series made in 1999 so nearly 20 years later and two movies made all made in the 90s for some reason so it's obviously a slow burning uh, success and in the first sequel dar which is mark singer went through a dimensional porthole to modern day la to stop some baddies getting hold of a neutron bomb which suggests they didn't learn any useful lessons from the Masters of the Universe movie. No, I'm not a huge Joss Whedon fan, so I might have my chronology slightly out here, but does that come after the episodes of Angel where the Grusalag comes through from his dimension into modern-day America? I think the Beastmaster in LA, as it should have been called, I think that was early 90s. But I think part of the reason why it had this kind of delayed afterlife was because it did really well on cable. It was, it, Although it was a bit of a flop at the time, it became quite notorious for always being on cable in america and apparently it was on hbo so much that there was a an american comedian called dennis miller who joked that a hbo stood for hey beastmasters on well i do remember it quite often being the late film on either bbc one or bbc two which does bring me around to my favorite i have tracked down one of these they had two continuity slides for the late film i think depending on the content one was a stack of film cans with a blue light and a red light shining on them you know obviously meant to be red hot and blue which you know there never really was because it was the bbc but i think that was the implication there the other when it was a horror one genuinely there was a circle of candles with a pentagram 
pram in the middle. I cannot believe now that the BBC used that as a continuity slide, but they did. They absolutely did. Although it's not as good as a Granada horror film one from when I was really, really young, which had really badly cut and pasted drawings like, you know, Dracula, a mummy and so on, and the word brrrr across them. I would love to see that again if anyone's got that. Well, okay, let's forget for a moment about the red light and the blue light shining on some film cans, and let's move away from Last Thing at Night on the BBC and go right back to Saturday mornings for your last choice, which is represented by this. Hi, it's us again. Can't get rid of us that easily. Listen, we'll be back to some more great music on the Saturday Picture Show, the first showing of the new Madonna video we have, plus It Bites live in the studio. Terrific. So join me, Mark and Gary on Saturday morning, BBC One, 8.30. Don't miss it. Okay, well, as you might have gathered, that's the trailer for the Saturday Picture Show. And I'm just going to ask Paul outright, what was the Saturday Picture Show? So the Saturday Picture Show was one of those Saturday morning shows they had in the summer that no one really quite remembers. Everyone remembers the iconic kind of swap shop, superstore, going live kind of things. But there, there was always one to fill in the gap on the summer holidays that kind of seemed to fade into history a little bit. And this, but the Saturday Picture Show was the one that I really liked for some reason. It always just stuck in my head. It never felt like the poor relation that uh, a lot of the others felt like and I don't think that might have been something to do with this kind of era if that's not too strong a word that I remember was Mark Curry and Cheryl Baker with Ooh Gary Davis doing the pop music slot so it was kind of you know it was peak 1986 telly there well I've got to say I mean I remember the summer ones and I remember the odd discrepancy being they didn't have as good content but they had the better theme tunes in terms of they actually got proper pop stars to do them because before the Saturday picture show there was Get Set for Summer which had Hazel O'Connor doing one of her mini rock operas then there was Yazoo doing the sequel Get Set which was I think it was partly based on Situation and then the Saturday Picture Show had Musical Youth doing the theme song I just remember it had the lyric tell all your friends and your neighbours you're going to go around knocking on everyone's door saying did you know the Saturday Picture Show's on Musical Youth said to tell it's also over on ITV. Everyone remembers Data Run. No one remembers Summer Run, which became over the summer. Do you remember what the theme to that was? No. It was Mama Used to Say by Junior, but it was just the do-do-do-do with him going, ooh, Summer Run, Summer Run, over the top of it. So they wheeled out the pop stars for these summer replacements and then filled it with stuff like My Overriding Memory of the Saturday Picture Show. It's a, just an interminable sequence of Cheryl Baker walking along the beach in Skegg Ness with somebody dressed up as that Skegness's bracing oh, geezer, yeah. you know, the one doing the weird step, asking him about Skegness. It seemed to go on forever. I think you don't get that on. Actually, you do get that on all the other ones, but they just seem more exciting somehow. Yeah, I think Cheryl Baker was often sort of given the Cheggers role of going out and about. I mean, speaking of Cheggers, I apparently looking this up this week, the, the main female presenter on the Saturday Picture Show appears to have been Maggie Philbin, but I've not no memory at all of her doing it. It was always Cheryl Baker in my head. You mentioned the Get Set for Summer. I think this is, they kind of evolved. It started as Get Set for Summer, then became the Get Set Picture Show, which is absolutely meaningless. And then it became the Saturday Picture Show. Yeah, so I think Maggie Philbin uh, did it for a while, and then Cheryl joined. Cheryl Baker was the epitome. I think we're legally obliged to use the word bubbly, aren't we? And I liked Mark Curry. I thought he had a nice way about him, and I didn't even know he was from Leeds at the time, which would have made me love him even more. He had that kind of 80s Timmy Mallet look with the Trevor Horn specs, but he wasn't nearly as irritating. Well, I think he's been dealt by a that It's one of those things where, you know when people are famous for a 
clip where something goes wrong. They only ever show the thing going wrong. They never show the reaction. I will point as well to when Philip Schofield accidentally cut the sound out in the broom cupboard. They never show him trying to do hand signals to cover for it, which he did really well. When they show the clips of Samantha Fox and the Brits, they only show the things going wrong. They don't show, for example, when she announced the four tops and Boy George came out. She said, you don't look like him, George, which is a brilliant way of saving it. And when Mark Curry knocked that Lego man's head off, I don't remember precisely what he did, but I remember as a kid thinking, good save. Whatever it was that he did, he did something funny to kind of cover for it, which is probably why they didn't fire him on the spot. What could be more classic Blue Peter than, you know, knocking something over and then doing a good recovery, as well as being able to interview someone whilst on a trampoline? That was probably a key requirement for the job, wasn't it? The the good recovery to a disaster. So, yeah, I, I really liked him. I did see something saying that on an edition of the Saturday Picture Show, he was demonstrating how to make a milkshake and thing he was using wasn't connected together properly it went all over him and he said basically yeah don't throw it all over yourself (laughs) so Gary Davis had a bit of a pop music slot on the show and I found a fantastic clip of him on YouTube from the Saturday Picture Show which is Gary Davis interviewing Robert Smith from The Cure who is probably my all time pop hero and apart from the obvious shared love of hairspray it's like matter and antimatter colliding it's a fantastic interview Robert Smith is fantastically patient but Gary Davis this is the most useless interviewer ever. It, 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 his, his questions include, you're back with a new album. When did you do that? <laughs> and Robert Smith says, well, last year. And um, and then he says, did you write any of the songs on holiday? I can't really imagine Robert Smith going on holiday, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, apparently he's to the Lake District. <laughs> Hardly with his bucket and spade and a hanky on his head, which I will pay good money to see. Those YouTube clips, they're pretty much all that you'll find on Saturday Picture Show these days. You know, I know full well, because I've recovered a lot of this stuff myself, that a lot of 70s and early 80s BBC Children's stuff is missing for kind of complex admin reasons we won't go into here. But there's almost nothing at the Saturday Picture Show left in the archives. I was staggered by that. I thought there might be half of them or something, but there's virtually none. I think there might be three. Exactly. It's like they knew at the time that the kind of September to April ones were all that anyone was going to care about and they will just wipe everything from uh, from the summer holidays. And that is pretty sad, really. You know, the, the thought that the milkshake incident and Robert Smith aren't sat there in the archives. But that isn't really the note I want to finish one of these on. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to give you a bonus choice. Right, off the top of your head, what's coming to mind? Can I talk about the comics strip career of adamant you certainly can that's something i still find hard to believe happened so this was in a magazine called tv tops it was a dc thompson magazine from 1981 i think it launched and it was kind of the usual stuff it had a little and large comic strip it had articles about mel mickey and heart to heart and that sort of thing and it had this comic strip called the fantastic adventures of adamant and i know that there were quite a lot of comic strips about pop stars of course looking used to do abba and i think they did the fizz as well and all sorts of things like that but they were generally kind of comic stories about life in a pop band you know bobby and cheryl have missed the bus to a photo shoot that kind of thing but this was like a full-on romantic historical fantasy adventure stuff and it, it started with this hooded mysterious hooded figure describing him as adamant hero of a hundred ages And he said, you live now, Adamant, as you have lived many times throughout history, fighting evil wherever you may find it. And they were really quite dark and moody stories and clearly inspired by Adamant being Pop's most swashbuckling figure. He was always 
kind of restlessly reinventing his image and rummaging through the dressing up box of history, wasn't he? He was the hussar and the dandy highwayman, the pirate, Native American, the Regency fop. And it kind of keyed into all that for this, these massive adventure stories. And they were you know, kind of beautiful. Well, I have a theory about them, which I'd love to know if this was correct or not, which is, you know, as you say, TV Tops was a quite odd venture, really, because there was already Lockin, which had hoovered up most of the ITV shows to do tie-in strips for. And there was, the BBC were in the process of launching Beam, and they also had buttons, which covered a lot of the shows for younger children. So I think the Adamant strip, because they couldn't get Dick Turpin, and they couldn't get Sapphire and Steel. And it's like those two shows have run headfirst at each other and collided. Yes, that's perfect. It has the, yeah. the Dick Turpin stylings, the Sapphire Steel storylines, because they had the Mant one. I really remember. I could be wrong, there's something about you went to give a talk at a school and all the children had gone into a trance and then some aliens playing chess moved the chess piece and he disappeared and went into the aliens' world and was kind of, I must work out what's happening here to free the children from their trance. That's right, yeah. That's not your average comic strip. No. But I think it was, I mean, obviously Adamant was the biggest pop star of the day and they were obviously kind of what was so brilliant about him is the fact that he was obviously this art student who'd had all these ideas and this massive interest in history and dressing up and, you know, and, and but he was also absolutely massive with kids. So I suppose it made total sense to sort of combine these these two things. And the illustrations were incredible. I looked this up and it was a Scottish husband and wife team called Gordon and Maureen Gray, which is a beautifully Scottish name for a couple i think they also drew the bucks fizz stories in look in and they drew the the stories of aha shaky and even five star apparently but they were all like the story of the band whereas this was clearly you know they could let their imaginations let rip on this one this was adamant galloping through history um, in these really quite beautiful and romantic stories and you would say better than they need to be really it really wasn't just a cash in was it it was its own entity somebody really put a lot of effort into that oh yeah and I wonder how much involvement Adamant had himself with them I don't know I think I, I guess even if he didn't have much involvement just his kind of imagination and his, his the way that he kept changing his image every few months I guess it, it just kept them going in, in fantastic material looking had a haircut on strip for a bit. They're a band that I think they get a bit derided now, but they were one of my first bands that I really loved. They mean a great deal to me. I'm very proud that I got Sarah Cox to play October is Orange on Sound of the 80s on Radio 2. They had actual adventures that I think were kind of romantic comedy mishap thing. You know, this is like a more subtle monkeys. Because there isn't really the fan base for them the way there is with somebody like Adam Ant. I just never been able to find any of it. It's a shame, really. Well, the adventures of Haircut 100... That's a movie waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know who will write the script. <laughs> Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington The Story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine Fox Alpha by Saint Etienne Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club and How Creation Records Took On The World and Nearly Won Find out more at timworthington.org <laughs>